session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Halakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Halakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 3104410555. Wanted to announce the book of the week for this week. It is The Book of Why, The New Science of Cause and Effect by Judea Pearl and Dana Mackenzie, The Book of Why. Um, I'm about 60 pages in and it is a very interesting and complicated book, but one that uh, in a way challenges the ways we've looked at cause and effect, even things like when we say correlation is not causation, but ways that we can actually create models to help predict and understand causation. And a really, really interesting, um, complex book in some ways presented in simple ways, but still new ideas that uh, are really interesting and I'm hoping to be able to share them with you on next week Monday there won't be a live show because of Labor Day here in the United States but that gives me a couple extra days to prepare this book for you guys next Wednesday that's the book of why the new science of cause and effect by Judea Pearl and Dana McKenzie I wanted to start off today's show talking about a topic that I've mentioned a few times recently, and it's this idea of being nice. In some ways, it's like I'm going on an attack against niceness or being nice, uh, which can sound puzzling because we think of nice as something pleasant. Find yourself a nice guy, be nice. Um, all those kinds of connotations we have with being nice tend to be positive. But really, when we look at being nice in the way that we tend to use it, it's actually not a good thing at all. And today what I wanted to actually talk about is uh, this statement that sometimes being nice is the meanest thing you can do in a given situation. Sometimes being nice is the meanest thing you can do in a given situation. And again, this is the way that we use this word nice that I'm talking about. So for example, Let's imagine a guy and a girl go on a date and the guy is not interested in the girl. And so they, after the date, he thinks, you know, this is not a match. I don't want to go out with this person again. But they talk the next day and he says, well, I want to be nice. So he tells her that he really liked her and he wants to see her again to be nice. I couldn't be mean, he says, or he thinks to himself and tell her the truth, tell her how I really feel and say that I'm not interested or that I think we're not a good match and I enjoyed meeting you, but I think it would be better if we don't see each other again. He says, I'm going to be nice and tell her that I had a great time. I want to see her again and say things that'll make her feel good because I want to be nice. I'm a nice guy. But we can see that that's actually the meanest thing he can do to her 
in that situation. By being nice, first of all, he's not being honest and telling the truth, which itself has we can have issue with, but also he is leading her on and misinforming her about what's going on between the two of them. He is stringing her along, and if she was, let's say, interested in him, now she thinks, okay, well, I'm going to get to see him again soon. She's going to focus some of her mental and emotional energy on this person and this potential relationship that might be starting to form, and it's going to be a different experience for her than if he had told her the truth. So going to the other alternative, if he was what felt like not being nice, being mean, and said, you know what, it was nice to meet you, but I don't think we're a match, and because of that, I think it wouldn't make sense for us to go out again. And in the moment, it would probably sting for that girl, we would understand, wouldn't feel very good if she was interested, um, and might not feel nice for him either in that moment to deal with that discomfort, but she would know and be able to go forward after that sting and say, okay, let me close this chapter on him, or I always hear Persians talk about dating as cases, let me close this case and move forward with my life and not have to think about this person which in that moment, there'd be a little bit more of a sting, but it would be much better for her to know where she stands and to be able to go forward than in the being nice alternative where she now thinks maybe something is developing between her and him and is still going to be holding on to this. And now maybe the guy is just going to stop talking to her over time, which is sometimes what people do in these situations. There's also this term called ghosting that relates to that, the idea of just kind of disappearing. So... You don't text or call, um, but he's going to probably find a way of letting her know in a more spread out, drawn out type of a way. And she's going to have to figure it out over time that, oh, this guy actually isn't interested and probably still not have any clarity. This is what often happens in these cases. The person, they go on a date or a few dates, and then the person expresses interest in some way let's say explicitly, but then implicitly through their actions starts to show that maybe they're not interested or something else is going on and they slowly disappear. And the person is left a little bit puzzled, like what was going on? They seemed interested, things seemed to go well, but I don't know what happened because what they told me seems to not match what they did. So what, what was going on? What happened? So again, in being nice, or in quotes, we should say that being nice, this person communicated something very different than what was going on and made the person have to go through a lot more pain, uncertainty, confusion, and have to commit more time to something that really had no potential just because the person wanted to quote-unquote be nice. And so we think that being nice means that I'm being good to other people. But really when we're being nice, it's self-serving. It's for ourselves. We're doing it because... We want to look good. In this case, this person wants to look good or also wants to not look bad or mean. Also wants to avoid an uncomfortable conversation. It's because they don't want to have it. The way you might tell yourself is, well, I don't want to hurt that person. So I said the nice things to them. I didn't want to hurt their feelings. And we try to make it seem like we're so noble and so good and altruistic that we're caring about someone else. But really, we're doing it just for ourselves. In this scenario, the guy didn't want to deal with the feeling of hurting them in the moment or hurting this person or saying the mean thing or dealing with the discomfort. So he said the nice thing for himself, not for her. 
We have to make that point very clear. It's not for the other person that we do this. And what I always say is we're not really being nice in a good way in that moment. All we're doing is we don't want to be there in the moment where the person gets hurt. We're okay if they're, we know they're going to get hurt eventually when they figure out we're not interested or if we disappear and that's going to be spread out and more painful. We just don't want to have to be there when the painful moment happens. We don't want to have to feel that guilt. So we're really, again, doing it for us, not them. So this whole idea that I'm going to be talking about more, uh, about this idea of niceness and how it's actually not a good thing, there's many aspects of how we can look at it. But what I wanted to talk about today was this idea that it's sometimes the meanest thing you can do in a situation is trying to be nice. Because we're not being genuine, we're not being open, we're not being honest, we're not letting the other person know the reality of the situation to then deal with it. And in these situations where people go on one date or two dates and they want to be nice, we have to realize that even if you show you're not interested in someone, it's not going to kill or devastate them. They're going to be okay. Let them move on. Let them have their life and their experience. Your approval or disapproval isn't going to make or break them. And if it would, that means they have their own issues going on. It's not about you. So we have to also not be so conceited in ourselves of I'm going to affect them so deeply by saying I'm not interested. They're going to be okay. So realize that and let them know that this is how I feel and let them move on. Your saying you're not interested is not the most important thing in the world and they can handle it. Don't think that you're uh, liking of them is going to be that important to them. So we let the person know, this is how I feel. And then the person gets to think about it, feel something, and then move on. So in being nice, we're being more mean to them. And when I'm talking about being nice, it might sound like when I'm saying don't be nice, it means be mean. And that's not at all what I'm trying to propose. It's actually, we have to move away from being nice in this way, which means not genuine, fake, ways of making the other person feel good, avoid conflict or whatever it might be, move away from being nice and go towards genuine kindness. So you can still, in letting that person know you're not interested, do it in a kind way, even if it doesn't feel good to that person to hear what might sound like a rejection anyway. But I am proposing that we go away from being nice and work on ourselves to be more genuinely kind and to be more genuine in general, which means that oftentimes we are going to say things that hurt one another. You can be with friends and if you're going to be nice, it means you don't share if they upset you or if they do something you don't like. Or even husbands and wives can be nice to each other. I'll see lots of relationships where they're afraid to share their feelings to each other because they say they don't want to hurt the other person's feelings. They don't want to face conflict. They don't want to have those uncomfortable conversations. So they choose to be nice. But again, another reminder that although we say I'm being nice because I don't want to hurt his or her feelings, we're not doing it for them. We're doing it for ourselves. It's very self-serving when we act nice, even though we make it seem like it's about other people. And again, being nice is often the meanest thing you can do in a given situation. People deserve to hear the truth. People can handle it and people deserve to know where you stand and where they stand so they can go forward. So we want to move away from niceness, this word that sounds good, but is really bad, and go towards genuine relationships and genuine kindness. 
And what I'll talk about on future shows related to this issue of niceness is that, again, it doesn't mean that if we're not being nice, we're let off the hook and we can be as mean as we want. It actually means that we need to work on ourselves to become more genuinely kind individuals so that we can make the best of our interactions, that we become more genuine overall, but we also become more genuinely kind and loving so that we don't have to be nice to have these pleasant conversations. We can genuinely be kind, and that's something we can work on and we need to all work on, and we can't just let ourselves off the hook and say, I'm just going to be nice in these situations and get away with not actually expressing my feelings or not actually having these types of real conversations. So just a reminder, sometimes being nice is the meanest thing you can do to that person in a given situation. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. We'll be right back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's go to a caller, Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello, are you speaking with me? Yes, I am. Thanks for calling. Answering my call. Sure. Go ahead. Um, I'm actually calling regarding having a lot of anxiety for the LSAT to mm-hmm. get into law school. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been prepping for it for about eight months now, and I've been doing really well on prep tests like tests from earlier years, but now that the September 8th date, which is when the test is, is approaching, I'm having really bad issues. Like, I can't stop thinking about what if situations to a point where it's gotten to a point where I'm like, oh, what if the day that I'm going to these tests, like, I get stuck in the elevator and I don't make it on time. Like, mm-hmm. every scenario that can go wrong just runs, keeps running through my head and just holds me back to a point where like I tried to take another prep test and my score significantly decreased because of it because during the whole test all I could think about is oh if I don't do well on this test I'm not going to get into law school and this is going to happen that's going to happen and Mm -hmm. it's really been bad yeah and that's you know this is the the thing about anxiety is uh, you know in some ways we can understand we all have anxiety or there's some purpose to it to a degree, but of course, when you have anything like what you're experiencing, it gets in the way of your progress or doing well and doing what you need mm-hmm. to do, and that's the problem. There, there's a lot of things we can look at because there's obviously, it seems like you're just an anxious person in general, and that's that's fine. That's who you probably are. You have test anxiety, but there could be also issues related to your own success or what's going to happen in your life that we also have to be aware of and there's some practical things that we can talk about that can help you reduce this anxiety or at least set you up um, to do the best that you can possibly do or to reduce the anxiety because naturally we have to understand you're going to be nervous when you go take the test so there's no solution where we're going to try to make you have no anxiety at all or no nervousness every person in that room 
with you is going to be nervous. That's just the way that it is. I remember when my brother Parham was taking the LSAT and even uh, I would study some of the stuff with him and I found it interesting, but it was very fun for me to just look at logic games without the pressure of actually having to take the test (laughs) than it is for someone who has to to make sure they learn those things well. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's a very different, I I get that we have to get that you're going to be anxious to some degree. Now, maybe I can start with some of the practical things first. There's things like, um, well, first of all, physical exercise is something I'd highly recommend because that can just obviously it's good for us in so many ways, physically, of course, but also mentally it can help reduce anxiety and it can be helpful in that way. So even just doing some cardio every day, it could be weights too, but just doing something like that, that can be helpful. Um, and also help you because we know that it can even increase our ability to concentrate and and things of that nature. It can be good for the brain also. So that will help you in that way. It can help your physical endurance, but also in a way your mental endurance. So I would recommend that meditation. I'd highly recommend and Mm -hmm. even meditation, a part of it. And I was talking about the book on Monday, um, why Buddhism is true by Robert Wright. And this idea that when you do, when you meditate over time, you start to create distance between yourself and the feelings. Because when you have that feeling of, or that thought, which comes with a feeling that I'm going to get stuck in the elevator and be late to my test, and and then I'm not going to make it to law school and all the catastrophizing that happens after that, Mm -hmm. it feels very true or feels very real. But something that we do in meditation is we put a distance between ourselves and that thought and that feeling. So rather than it being just all encompassing, it becomes, I'm having this worry about getting stuck in the elevator but it's not necessarily true. And even just that distance that we can create between ourselves, observing what we're thinking and feeling can be helpful. So I know you only have a, a, about a week left, but even if you could do a few minutes of meditation a day, or not a week, let's mm-hmm. say about 10 days left, um, right. that can be helpful as well. So that's something else to think about. Another thing as far as the practical standpoint goes, um, do you know where you're taking the test? Yes, it's going to be at a hotel. Okay, and have you been there before? Uh, no, but I'm actually planning to go there three days ahead of that, and I'm also staying there the night before. Okay, good. Well, And that's good. Staying there the night before will also help you worry about things like um, traffic, traffic <laughs> and those things in the morning and all that. And I was going to suggest even, and this is to other people as well, when you have test anxiety, um, going to the place where you take the test. Now, sometimes if it's the same class, then you won't have to worry about that. But when you take these kinds of tests, it can be good to go and just check out the site. Also, because for many of us, especially when you live in somewhere like LA, but really anywhere, there's worries about parking and then, you know, traffic and all these other things that can make you get nervous that you these uncertainties and if you go there and see okay this is where i would park i walk this far i go here even go to the place if you can if it's open okay this is where i'll take the test it could start to take some of the anxiety away or at least reduce a little bit of that and also the day of the test making sure you go early don't be rushing into the you know the testing site uh, you know which i don't think you're planning on doing because then of course if you're even you know, on time, the way you're worrying about it, then you will start to worry, well, I'm on time, but what if that, you know, these things you're saying, the elevator is going to break right. down or this or that. And even if the elevator did break down, you could take the stairs, you know, there would be ways for you to, to get there. Um, but so make sure you go early. And that's true for other people who have test anxieties to make sure 
you get to the place early so you don't worry about those kinds of things. You can get in there, calm yourself down, and all of that. Now, another thing when it comes to test anxiety, and it doesn't completely apply to you because of the type of test you're taking, but I just want to share it with listeners, mm -hmm. is to really prepare yourself. Because obviously, the more prepared you are, uh, right. And in this way, I mean, you can prepare yourself, but it's not like a test where you have to memorize 50 terms and you can just memorize Correct. those 50 terms. There is a performance element to the test you're going to be taking rather than just a knowledge-based test. Mm -hmm. um, but for people who are taking tests and have test anxiety, one of the best things you can do is become as prepared as you can be, which obviously makes sense in general, but it'll make you feel less anxious. And people will say, you know, if they don't feel like they're good at math, they get more anxious during math tests than they do during, mm -hmm. you know, other tests. Now, so there's all of those types of things. Also, when you're taking the test, one thing to keep in mind, because the way you're describing yourself, I could imagine you might have this mindset of if you get to a question and you, let's say, are struggling with it, you might start to catastrophize like, oh my gosh, I'm not getting this one. Does that mean I'm going to miss a lot of them? Does that mean mm -hmm. I'm not going to get, you know, that whole cascade starts. Like of, it's going to be the snowball effect. And exactly. It's going to go right. bad. Right. So we have to almost, you know, make sure we tell ourselves that I c I'm going to miss some questions. I mean, that's just expected. And I can still get a very good score missing some questions. So mm -hmm. if I'm on a question and I'm struggling, that's okay. That's not the end of the world. And this is even where the things that meditation teaches us are important because it keeps us mindful, right? Because what you're doing in that moment is you're struggling with one problem, but then you're extending it to all the problems of the test and then what's going to happen in the future when I get the score and applying to law school and my life and all that. And we're getting completely away from the moment. And this is where mindfulness can be so important is that if we can stay in the moment, we can stay with, okay, this is a, a problem I'm struggling with. And also you'll handle the problem better if you don't let your mind wander in that way. Um, and you'll also be aware that, okay, it's just this question and I can move on. So those are just some practical um, thoughts that I wanted to share to you and other listeners dealing with test anxiety, which is a very, very common experience for just any test, but especially big tests like this, the LSAT, where uh, it can be a huge influence in your, not overall future, but let's say what law schools you, you can go to. Um, right. So you said, how are you doing on the practice tests in general? Um, I'm actually have been consistently, like until about a month ago, I was in a 99th percentile. I was scoring in the 170 and 175 range. Mm -hmm. I was wow. doing really well. Mm -hmm. And to be completely honest, my community GPA isn't really that well because of my community college, but after like transferring to a four-year, I've been on the dean's list every year, but still my GPA isn't as high as I would want it to be. Mm -hmm. So I would still be considered like a splitter for um, schools that I apply to with a high LSAT score and then like a little lower GPA than what they would expect. Mm -hmm. Um, but now it's just, it keeps dropping as I'm getting closer. And I do take Adderall for ADHD. Okay. Um, and there are some parts of the test, for example, the reading comprehension part where you have to read like, um, five, 600 word passages and there's four of them on the test and answer questions on them. And I consistently feel like I get distracted during the passage or I keep worrying like I'm going to run out of time and every scenario keeps running in my head and I get distracted from everything else. And I'm like, wow, there's only like 15 more minutes left and I have to answer 20 more questions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this is again where the anxiety, you know, 
it's like in some ways a self-fulfilling prophecy too. You start to worry that I'll run out of time. And because of the anxiety, you might be more likely to run out of time because now Mm -hmm. you're distracting yourself and and losing focus. Have you, you've taken a lot of practice tests, it seems, right? Yes, I've taken uh, about, about 24 or so. And so when you take them, do you tend to do okay with time or is time always do you run out of time until until like in the beginning yeah i was really bad with timing but as i practiced more i was getting a lot better with time to a point where i would never run out of time but now that i'm having this anxiety and all that i i do run out of time Mm -hmm. on the reading comprehension part yeah so the good news is we know that you can you you can take this test and have enough time to do all the questions but this anxiety when it comes in it makes it a little bit more difficult and we know you're going to feel anxious day of. That's okay. But it doesn't mean the anxiety has to overwhelm you. It's possible that you can take everyone in that room is going to be anxious. And they can they can finish the test just as you can as well. Now, you mentioned being in the 99th percentile and even just hearing you say that. Do you tend to feel like you can be a perfectionist, have that type of obsession with getting everything right? Yes. To be honest, I've set the bar really high for myself yeah. to a point where I'm like, if I don't do well on the September test, everyone tells me, okay, you can take it in November. But to me, in my head, it's like, if I don't make it in September, I'm never going to make it in life. Like, not only I'm not going to make it for law school, I'm not going to make it in life. Like, there's no other future for me. That's how I put it in my head. Yeah. I know it's not the reality, it's but definitely not. that's and, how I feel. Right. And, you know, so Ian, I'm glad you at least at some level can recognize it's not the reality. But what I hear you saying when you say, you know, it has to be this and you're putting this pressure. Sometimes we can fool ourselves and things think that that's a good thing, that I'm going to put so much pressure on myself because I'm not going to take it easy on myself. I'm going to really push myself. So this is this is it. This is everything. I have to do amazing in this moment. And we think that's going to inspire us or motivate us. But rather than pushing us forward, it pushes us down because it puts too much pressure on the situation. Even if you get a really, you know, you get a 180 on this, I know you mm-hmm. might think life, you know, your life is set, but you're going to have to work your butt off to be successful in law school right. and beyond. And even if you get a bad score, your your or whatever a bad even score is to you or not a great score, your life will definitely not be doomed. And I know law schools are very much, you know, if you go to the great law schools, it does set you up in some ways that other schools don't. But you're going to make your life through thousands and thousands and even in a way millions of decisions that you're going to make for the rest of your life. So this test is not going to make or break you. And also it's not going to define you. I know sometimes we can put so much pressure and we think, wow, imagine if I get this amazingly high score and everyone will know me as the guy that got a one, whatever, you know, whatever that score is and telling people it's not going to define you. This is where having a real sense of self and self-esteem that's not tied into performance is important. That this test is not going to make or break you or make or break your life. You're going to try your best because it can be important. It could be helpful mm-hmm. and has an impact, but it's not going to make or break you as a person, your value. I'm talking to you right now. I value you as a human being, not because you tell me your score is this or that and you have a mm-hmm. value. And I also know in your life, you might think that this is going to make or break your life, but it definitely won't. You can make it make or break your life. You can get a bad score and then, you know, ruin your own life or you can get a good score and also still ruin your life it's going to be up to you what you make of it so it it will probably be better for you sometimes we need to motivate ourselves and so so we work hard enough that's not what is going on here 
You don't need to put more pressure on this situation. Mm-hmm. You getting even, you know, sometimes it could be good to go through, let's just say you get the score you don't like at all. You get in mm-hmm. the 140s or 50s or whatever would be a disaster to you. Think mm-hmm. of what's going to happen in your life. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be crushed even maybe for a while. But then you probably will take the November test or you will figure out something. Life will go on and you will be okay. So sometimes we can um, take away the strength of the catastrophe by realizing it's not such a catastrophe. That even if everything goes in the negative way that you're worried about, you'll still be okay. Life will still go on and your professional career and everything will not just fall apart and your whole life will be doomed in your early 20s going forward. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But tell me more about your experience because I don't want to just, you know, I, I was talking a lot in general about test anxiety and experiences. What is it that you currently are going through? Is it getting in the way of your studying right now day to day? Absolutely. Is. Okay. It's like, again, that whole notion of if I don't do well on this, there is no future for me. That's like becoming the reality. Like, even though it's not the reality, it, it is becoming the reality for me. Right. And you have to make sure you counteract that thought when it comes up. It's not the reality. You know, it's, I know, I know it could feel that way and you can read maybe books and people talk about law school and oh, because I got a 176, I went to, you know, Yale and then I went to this law firm and blah, blah, blah. And life was set for me because I got that 176 score, but it's not that simple. It has a big impact, but you have to do so many things afterwards that will make or break your life over and over again. And so Right, and I feel like I feel like that's something that really does bother me because I'm like, okay, even if I get a one sixty, which is not a great score for me, I could still go to a lot of schools even in LA and mm-hmm. still like be there. But it's this whole thing about law school that if you don't go into a top fourteen school or top this school, like your life isn't gonna be as well. Like you're not gonna be well. Even though I know that's not true because even if you go to a smaller school, like even, I don't know, not even in the top 100 school, like you can still be become like someone who's really successful eventually. Mm-hmm. But again, I can't convince myself to think that way. I just think like, oh, no, if you don't make it in a big school, it's done. Well, I mean, yeah, I hope you can, like, you know, try to convince yourself some more and realize you're going to create what you become. And yeah, I, I get it that law school... I think it is different than some other schools like med school for a lot of people. It's like, well, if you just get in, then you become a doctor, then it's pretty much the same. Whereas law school, it feels like your opportunities can be really heavily affected by where you go to school. And I think obviously there is truth to that. But the idea of the doomed kind of thing, it's either a heaven or hell. That's the part that makes it too much pressure. Does it have an impact? Absolutely, of course. You know, you want to get the best score you can. But the idea that either your life will be heaven or hell based on your score being good or bad, that's the part that's, first of all, just fundamentally not true. And second of all, that thought and feeling is going to make it a lot harder for you to do well. It's going to get in the way of your performance. So you have to counteract that thought. It's not true. People go to Harvard Law School and Yale Law School and are miserable, both professionally and personally. People go to other schools and they become super successful and happy. I'm not saying it has no impact, but it's what you're going to make of it that's going to be important. So try to counteract that thought when it comes to you of this is it. Everything rides on this moment. Because if you do that every 
you know, for this test and then every question, every passage, you're just going to make every moment too bigger than it really is. It's not that mm -hmm. big. And you have to be able to do that. So I would consider doing some type of meditation, even if it's a few minutes a day, it can be calming and see what comes up for you. I would recommend the physical exercise. I'm glad you're going to go to the, the hotel and, and be there and, and, you know, that'll reduce some of the anxiety of just being there. Um, mm -hmm. Morning of, it might even be good to do some deep breathing and relaxation and get yourself in a good mindset. If um, I don't know if you're a coffee person, but if you're going to take the Adderall for the test, mm -hmm. coffee might not be the best thing because it'll make right. you jittery. And then when you're jittery, what happens is, you know, we always try to differentiate our physical and our mental, but they're so interconnected because if you start to feel the symptoms of anxiety, you'll think you're more anxious than you are. So you'll kind of try to start to fool yourself to think you're really anxious or you'll interpret it as thinking you're really nervous, but it could just be the coffee making you jittery. So there's those types of things you can do um, mm -hmm. to prepare yourself. But September 8th, it's an important day, but it's not the most important day of your life. And we have to kind of diffuse some of the, the weight you're putting on it, that it's important, but it's not the biggest deal. You're going to have many more important days in your life and your life is going to be created by what you do hundreds and thousands of times after that more important than just that test so we, we want to try to take the pressure off which there's always going to be some pressure but the less the better right that that actually yeah yeah is there any like yeah. you know any anything else you wanted to ask or talk about related to what you're going through i'm sure there's a lot and i know we didn't necessarily solve it by any means but i wanted to check in with you what's on your mind about this um pretty much that what i've said it's just, yeah you answered it as far as meditation goes is there any type that you're, you would recommend mm, i mean you know it depends try first just focusing on the breathing of very you know the maybe the most simple one is just you focusing mm -hmm. on the inhaling and exhaling when thoughts or feelings come up you notice them but you try to focus back on the breath that's your, your focus point See how that goes. If you feel like maybe that's too free-flowing, maybe you would like a guided meditation so that it kind of occupies your mind a little bit. So you can you can give that a try too. But they, they either one would be good. Um, and just keep in mind, no matter what you do, you're still going to be nervous day of the test. There's That's not going to change. And I don't want you to think that that's bad if you're nervous because you're going to be. You know, we have to accept the reality. And to have an idea that I either have to not be nervous or I'm going to, you know, if I'm nervous, I'm going to fail. That's not true. Everyone in that room is going to be nervous, including yourself. You're going to have anxiety okay. going in. And that's okay. We're just trying to make it less. And again, this is going to be an important day, maybe probably the most important day of that week. But it's not the most important day of your life. You're going to have many choices to make and things you're going to do and not do that are going to create your life. This isn't everything, even though it might feel like it because of you know what you're going through right now it's going to be important but not the only thing that's going to matter so keep that in mind so you don't put too much pressure on the moment all right i will do that okay good luck there and then good luck going forward thank too you. okay thank you so much nice man. talking you take Very care nice talking with you you too bye-bye okay, all right going into our next commercial break studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 we'll be right back Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for calling. So, 
I'm a single mom. I have a four and a seven-year-old, and um, their father and I were in a relationship for over 10 years, and we worked together. We were best friends, everything, and he still, you know, I still feel a very strong, energetic bond with him. Um, it's been almost two years, and I haven't been able to move on, and I feel like I'm holding on and I'm stuck still working with him. I still have to spend a lot of time with him in the sense of organizing his schedule, his life, and everything we've done together for the past 10 years. So I feel energetically bonded, binded to him financially, mentally, physically. I've tried to move on. I, I go on dates. I can't even imagine someone's hand touching me. And, you know, I'm just witnessing, like, how easy it was for him to move on and it's almost like he enjoys watching me suffer mm. and and I don't know how to go about this without inflicting some harm to my own children mentally I feel like um, they know too much of our business they've been in, in the presence of arguments and fights and they kind of just you know they're starting not to trust him and feel like he's a liar and um I'm very, I've done over like seven, eight years of like healing work. I'm really big into meditation. As soon as I feel like I'm taking five steps forward, every month it's like this broken cycle. Mm -hmm. I end up taking 10 steps back. Yeah, I, I feel that and I hear that in what you're saying. And, and I know moving on or moving forward is not easy, but it does seem like you almost don't, you're not sure if you deserve it or don't want to give it to yourself in some ways. And you, you're staying stuck in this, and I know you said energetically connected, or I don't—I forgot exactly the word you said—but it's more like it's energetic, draining your energy. This relationship and connection you have with your uh, ex-husband—it's just taking away your energy and not letting you go forward. And of course, even in saying that, I want to recognize that it might be taking it away, but it's up to you to try to change the dynamic so it doesn't do that. And that's what we have to look at. Um, just so I'm clear on some things, you—you you said. You you got divorced. Is it you got divorced two years ago? Yes. Okay, and then you but you still work with him. Yeah, and he he stays at my house when he's in LA. I moved away from Florida just to get away, and he comes and visits the children one to two weeks a month. So he's always. I try to leave the house, but sometimes I don't have somewhere to stay for a week or two, so I can't be gone out of my own home that long. And, uh, how are you, know, you? How are you with that setup? I'm usually okay here and there, but then I find out really like crucial things he's doing. Like he's with some girl that was like one of my best friends for three years in Florida. Like just very hurtful things I find out that continue to just make me like have less of that self-respect and love and worth and I and I and I know the rippling effects with it, it coming down from my lineage I'm three generations of women my mom my grandmother I've watched them be in mentally abusive relationships um, giving more than they had to give I see the cycles but it's almost like I'm watching a bad movie and I can't get out of it yeah and it's going to be up to you to 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 change the script in that movie or recognize that you don't have to see that movie all the way through to the end, which is maybe what you feel like you have to do. And so maybe before we get into the moving forward part, tell me a bit about him and the marriage you guys had, because you just kind of alluded to some 
ideas of emotional abuse or emotionally being hurt. What what was the marriage like? Well, I mean, in the beginning it was good, and it's like he he made a uh, he was very devoted to me in the beginning. He made a promise that if it didn't ever work out, it wouldn't be his fault that he would give everything he had. And it's like some really wounded part of me in, in my subconscious mind wanted to, like, go against that and almost, like, inflict everything possible to destroy it. Like, he had to really fight to be with me. I rejected him. I didn't see us as compatible. But I didn't really see myself compatible with anyone. I was I never wanted to get married. I didn't want to have kids. Mm-hmm. So this is when you guys were getting to know each other in the dating process. Yeah. But so he very early on told you that this is going to work out and if it doesn't work out it's because of you saying he would never give up he would never be the one to he he believes in making things work and trying but now it's like completely opposite but i was, want to try and he yeah doesn't. but i mean i'm still trying to understand was that when you guys first had met or you guys had already been in a relationship for quite a while we had already been we, okay. had, we had already been for three years oh okay, okay. Um, all right so um, so it seems like at some level you were afraid of commitment or afraid of a relationship or getting married i just it's i'm i know i'm I'm self-destructive and sabotaging no matter how much work i put in Hmm. there's something in my subconscious that's like deeply embedded that you can't count on men that they're just you know there's always going to be deceit and and spiteful things behind your back that's what i grew up seeing and hearing nonstop, so it's like it's almost like I'm doing it with mm-hmm. open consciousness to my own daughters. Like I'm embedding those programs deep within them, even though I try not to. Yeah, we don't want to. You know, it seems like a lot has been passed down generation to generation. We don't want to pass that on. And I was taking a step back to your marriage, but it seems like maybe taking another step back might be important. So, in your family, what was what was the relationship like between your father and your mother? What was going on there? I mean, he was a cheater. They were divorced. She remarried and the, my when I was four or five, and my stepdad was always on trial. She always had to investigate him. She always had to uh, feel like she wasn't enough, or, and it was it was just never ending. Hmm. And so, did you, did you see him as a bad guy too, who needed to be on trial, or you feel like she was just so um, traumatized by what she went through, or? you know, fixated on what she went through, that she had to see him as the same as her previous husband? I mean, I believe it it was both of them. They were equally responsible. Mm -hmm. And would your mom, other than just seeing these interactions, would she tell you things about men or things to expect? Oh, I mean, yeah, I I grew for sure. Go after money that love doesn't last. Go after comfort and money and... And that's the only thing that will really bring you happy. Everything will fail you, hmm. for sure. Yeah, so not really um, a recipe for creating someone who wants or thinks there can be even a loving relationship. So you re- resisted it for a long time, and then when you finally did marry your now ex-husband, you're saying at the beginning things were good. When did things change when you guys got married when you guys got had kids what, when we what had the second child when i was pregnant when i found out i was pregnant with the second child okay so what changed i mean financially we had a huge downfall and i already was giving 
not most of my attention to the little one, and now there was another one on the way, and um, I was blaming him. I, I definitely, the last three years we're together, I definitely projected a lot of resentment and blame towards him for not being able to provide financially for the kids, properly getting evicted from houses and things like that. Mm. You guys were evicted when you were, while you were pregnant? Yeah. Wow. So you had to deal with quite a lot. I could, well, you could, it's understandable you were upset. I mean, I'm not saying it was his fault. I don't know exactly mm-hmm. what was going on, but you were very angry with him. Yeah. Okay. And and it seems like there was a lot for you to be angry about in those situations, but it's very likely you also carry a lot of anger towards men in general. And so you, you were going to be mad at him maybe no matter what. For sure. Yeah. And so... Um, what I want us to do is to talk a bit more after the break, because we're getting close to a commercial break. And I'm, you have some level of awareness, which is good, that you recognize how your history plays a part uh, or a big part in, in creating the life you've cre- or, or affecting the life you've created. But it seems like for the same thing many of us experience, it's hard to change that script. And that's where you're having a hard time. So I want to talk a bit more about him and you because it seems like you're saying he was emotionally abusive later on and then also we have to look at what you're doing now because i think you will likely have to create more boundaries between yourself and him in order for you to move on and related to that i don't know if you really want to move on that's the thing you maybe want to stay stuck in this both because you mentioned being self-destructive so you like to keep yourself in these painful situations because something about that feels comfortable and feels right about you but also i'm sure you're very afraid of moving forward and starting something new with someone else because your expectation is that it's just someone else to hurt you in a new way or in the same way but a different person and so that's probably scary too so there's a lot that you are doing that is keeping you where you are because it probably feels safer than moving forward. So I want you to think a bit about those things I just said. We're going to go to the commercial break, and after the break, we'll talk some more, okay? Okay. All right, thank you. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Before the break, we're with a caller. Let's go back to her now. Caller, are you still there? Yes. Okay. So uh, we were talking before the break. You talked about what you're going through now. A 10-year relationship ended in divorce two years ago. You have two, I think you said they're both daughters, four and seven. And Mm -hmm. you mentioned that it's difficult for you to move on. But as I was talking about before the break, it does seem like you are probably afraid to move on or more comfortable not moving on and that word comfort sounds funny maybe to people because it sounds like something good something that feels good but when people create their comfort zones or find themselves in their comfort zones it's often very painful and leaves them unhappy unsatisfied and unfulfilled but we stay there because it feels safer than venturing out and risking being hurt in some ways it's like we prefer depression over anxiety of the unknown And it seems like as much as you're saying it's hard for you to move on, and I think you recognize this to some degree, you you likely don't want to move on or move forward from what you're going through. And I oftentimes prefer prefer the word move forward because sometimes when we say move on, people think it means the past never happened or it's not affecting us at all. And that's not the case, but we can move forward in life 
no matter what the loss is that we are dealing with. Um, so you feel, it seems like you feel very stuck. Yeah. And do you see the ways that you maybe create that stuck situation for yourself? I do, but I feel like there's a lot on my shoulders. Like okay. I have a lot of responsibilities. Like I, I observed my grandmother when I was four moving on and, to this day, I watch her children. None of them really respect her for that. I watch my mom. She moved on when I was four, and I don't really respect her for that. It's not because she moved on. It's because she was in a toxic relationship. The next relationship was toxic? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I think that that's interesting that you can recognize that, that moving on and moving forward wasn't the problem. It was the ways that it was done that was the problem. So it's not just that moving forward is always good. If someone moves forward and then creates a very unstable life for their kids, that's not something good. Um, but staying in a victimized state is not helping your kids either because you're not taking care of yourself and that's going to affect them too. So I get it that it seems scary to move forward because you think it's maybe going to turn your kids against you or it's going to hurt them more. But you taking care of yourself is going to be the best thing you can do for your kids. They need that. They need their mom to be strong and, and take care of herself. And like you even said about the messages you send them, showing them that taking care of yourself is important, that it doesn't benefit anyone to hurt yourself or to stay in a painful state or situation. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to necessarily move forward into a relationship with another man, but... I think you do need to first move forward away from your husband. And I think the way the setup is where he's staying with you one to two weeks a month is not a great way to create that distance and separation that you need. And I get it that he's the father of your kids. So in that sense, you always have to have some connection to him. And it's important for you and him to co-parent and to be uh, connected in how you guys parent your daughters. Um, but it seems that you're seeing him a lot more than is probably good for you. Mm -hmm. And that, that's where I think it, there's an issue. Uh, so do you think you want to move on? You want to move forward? I don't think so. Okay. So I want you to hear that when you tell yourself I'm having, you know, I can't move on or I don't want another man uh, to even touch my hand or to get to know me. It's that you... You don't want to move on. It's not that you can't. Yeah. So so why don't you want to move on? You've touched on it, but I want to, for you to think a little bit more about that. Why don't you want to move on? Because I believe relationships take work, just like anything. It's a it's a it's a working progress, and mm -hmm. you have, if people commit and put enough. Uh, effort into it there's no reason why two adults can't resolve things like I personally was not able to fully communicate this well until just recently this year after all of this lifetime of healing work mm -hmm. so I know I, I shut him out I pushed him away I just ignored him I would go days or week without talking to him if I was frustrated because I didn't as a child I would just shut down and put up walls mm-hmm and, you know, something, I, I agree with you that we can work out a lot more than people tend to work out. Um, but, you know, you said two adults should be able to work it out. Doesn't necessarily mean any two adults should be able to work out anything. 
Sometimes mm-hmm. it's not the right relationship. Sometimes too much damage has been done. So, yes, we make attempts to work through things and to work on things, but it doesn't just mean because we're talking about two adults that it's going to have to work out or definitely can. What happened in your guys' relationship that was hurtful? Because, again, you mentioned it initially, but we haven't talked much about how he was uh, emotionally hurting you. You mentioned that he's maybe dating someone now that was a friend of yours, but I'm talking about during the marriage what was painful, what was going on. I mean, I definitely felt like he had very selfish-like qualities, like my stepdad was always um, putting his best interests first rather than being having companionship and partnership. I didn't know how to be a, a, a good uh, wife or a, or a mother or a partner. This was all, like, new to me. I didn't grow up observing any type of role model, mm-hmm. not from a, how a masculine man should be or how a woman should be. So... I already knew it was some like a learning progress. Like you just figure it out as you go, but I feel like by the time I did figure it out, it was already too late. <laughs> but figure out what though? If you're saying he was how to how to express yourself, how to not inflict more projections and victimization and blame and resentment instead of just you know being open about things that come up. I would take it very personal. I would shut down. I would reject him. Um, he, you know, he he didn't like the fact that I had the baby sleeping in the bed with me. I was really glued to the firstborn. And for me, it was like he didn't go to sleep till 5 in the morning every night. Anyway, he'd be up on the computer all night. So what difference did it make? Like, I felt, I felt pretty alone even when I was in the relationship towards the last three, four years. Mm-hmm. And what you even just then, said, I, I want to point out something, you know, like he, you, you said, he didn't like the baby was sleeping in the bed with you, and you're saying, well, what difference does it make? You're not in the bed, anyway. Now, yes, it's important for you and him to be close, but if it's not good for the kid, it's not good for the kid, anyway. And this also points out to what happens in a lot of relationships when the husband and wife, mom and dad, don't have a good close relationship. The parents, one or both of them, could seek to get something from the kids because something is missing in their life. So because he's not there by your side to sleep, well, you wanted the baby by your side. And that's unfortunately what happens. And that's why I always say that it's so important for husbands and wives to have a good relationship and to be a good mother. You have to be a good wife and to be a good father. You have to also be a good husband because the relationship you create is a big part of the parenting that you do overall or the the, the type of environment you're creating for the kids. So yes, I get what you're saying. He wasn't in the bed, but it doesn't mean if keeping the baby in the bed is bad, it somehow makes it okay. But but nonetheless, um, going back to what you were saying before, it was almost like I wasn't communicating well, and it sounds like you probably weren't, and it's good for you to recognize things you didn't do well and things you can improve on, but it doesn't seem like you're, you're saying the reason why things didn't work was because you didn't communicate well. It seems like you think he was self-serving or he was selfish and only thinking about himself. So even if you communicated well, it probably wouldn't have made a difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't want to jump to that conclusion, but it does seem that way. And maybe some of your even lack of communication was that he wasn't very receptive to you communicating to him. Right. So no, not, even to this day, I feel like now that I communicate well, it doesn't make a difference. He, yeah. he doesn't want to receive it. He doesn't want to acknowledge it or take accountability for it. 
Right. You so you want to be accountable for it. Yes. Sure. It, so you know, in a way, I I think it's good for you to you probably have and can learn so many things from your experience with him. Um, but sometimes we can think, well, I did this thing wrong and it didn't work out, so that's why it didn't work out. But it could be that you did a lot of things wrong, but it still wasn't going to work out because he wasn't right or you weren't right for each other, and that's that's still the conclusion. Even if you did those things right, it's not that the marriage would have been really good, but you can recognize things you did wrong. Just like a doctor might lose a patient and realize that she could have done some things better, but maybe the patient would have died anyway. They still might recognize, I could have done this, this, and this, but I think that patient would have died, but I can take those lessons going forward. So you can learn the things you did wrong, and if you feel like you communicate better, that's great, and you can take that into a future relationship, or even just your relationships in general, not just romantic friendships with your kids, mm -hmm. with family. Um, but it doesn't mean that, well, if I had gotten it right, everything would have worked out right. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So that, that's what I'm hearing is like you're just blaming yourself for things you did wrong and thinking, give me another chance to now do it right. But it doesn't mean that he's the right person to then show these new skills or things that you've learned. That Maybe it's good to take those and go forward with them. Yeah, I understand. I mean, even to this day, I feel like there's a lot of manipulation at play. Like, up until even five months ago, I, I told them, I was like, just, you know, you're not putting any effort to move forward. But I kind of know him so well that I know why he's not. And at the same sense, he's not. I've asked him twice before in the last five months, tell me, like, close those doors for me. I, I want that closure, so I feel like I couldn't have possibly done more. Just tell me, go on, there's no chance for us in the future. And he's like, I can't do that. I don't know what I want. I can't do that. Hmm. And so you said, you, you, said you, you think you know why he does that. Why do you think he does that? Well, because when everything really fell apart, we find we were financially really well well off, and then everything hit the like literally the rug beneath us was pulled, and everything started to ripple effect one thing after another, from lawsuits to financial problems to another baby coming to an eviction. Like it poured more than it has my whole life combined that one year, and I know in his mind he he grew up watching his mom and dad's relationship fall apart when he financially went bankrupt his dad and his fears are that there's no chance it could even work unless he becomes successful so he's putting everything he can right now towards success and i don't think he would even consider a possibility of us working out unless there was financial security oh so you think he does want things to work out but wants to make sure he's financially secure before he brings that even up or makes that effort yeah. Okay, do you want to be back with him? You said he dated one of your good friends. There's all this stuff going on. Would you, do you think it's the right relationship? I mean, I don't know. I'm in a place where I feel like these patterns keep coming up in a different script. This movie is like on repeat, just different people. My last two, three exes before him was the same thing. There was always uh, cheating or having to investigate them, assuming that they're going to do something wrong. Mm -hmm. I, it's almost like I set it up for it until sure. it happens. I mm -hmm. create it. Yeah, I so, mean, again, it's one of those, it sounds weird to call it comfort zone, but you're choosing that. You want to be, you probably find people to be suspicious of, and then you want to be suspicious of them and want to confirm your suspicions because that's safer than the alternative, which is that it's actually what you think and believe is not true. You'd rather 
even if it's a negative thought, to confirm it than to uh, have to deal with trying to figure out what's actually going on and maybe the person can be trusted. But I want you to realize that you're writing that script and you're also casting the movie both in uh, who you choose to be in it and how you're choosing yourself to be. And that doesn't have to be that way. You have much more control over what's going on than you probably realize. And so it doesn't have to be this way. You're creating the movie. You're the producer, you're the actor, you're everything. And you are making it go this way and you can make it go a different way. I understand from your experience, you're not sure if you can. And also, it's not that just magically you're going to do it better next time. You really would have to continue working on yourself and create something different. But to think I have to go back and relive the rest of that movie because there's no other choice, I don't think that's going to be the right one. Just your hesitation when I said you think he's the right person to be with, it doesn't seem like you think he is. But you I don't think, think anyone is. <laughs> okay. Well, you don't have to be with anyone until you feel, or never, but until you feel like it's right. But I wouldn't say go back and in in a bad relationship if you think it's going to be a bad one just to be with someone, or just say, well, it's the father of my kids, so I have to make it work with him. You know, putting your kids through all this instability, then getting back and then having a bad marriage, I think would be worse than never getting back at all. Mm -hmm. So I want you to really think about that before you just go and recreate this uh you know start the movie again you know it's been on pause or at least it's been a little bit different but going back to that old movie doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing just because you know maybe there's some things telling you to go back so yeah it seems clearly like of course you don't want to move on if you are still wanting things to be as they were before you want things to go back to to before of course you're not going to move on and that's why you're you're stuck, which I understand. But I really want you to think about, is this really the right relationship to try to create, to put all this effort to continue to hurt myself or not let myself live my life for something that might just be hurtful to me and to my kids? Mm-hmm. I mean, l- lately I've been working a lot on how to, like, release and rewrite that script because I know 80-90% of the subconscious mind is literally on repeat over and over from those programming. I mean, the program is so deeply embedded. It's I'm watching three generations deep. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing, different actors, like you said, different actors and actresses, the same script. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel a little defeated. Like I, I'm strong, but it's like how, how much can a person take moving forward and then moving 10 times more back again? Yeah, well, I mean, but I think it's because you don't want to move forward, as you know, you, you or I think are seeing more and more. So it's not just like it's because the world is this way, there's no other choice. You're afraid to move forward because you don't want to move on. So, of course, you're not going to let yourself, you're going to find a way to stumble back. And yeah, him coming and staying with you one or two weeks a month and all of that is, it, it, you know, you could say it's frustrating, but also you want that too because you don't want to lose that connection and lose that chance of getting back what you think you're supposed to get back but i really do want you to think more about that i know you're doing healing i hope you go to therapy and look at these things deeply and really try to understand what is the best thing for you and don't just think you have to follow those old scripts because you're you're unconsciously going to go towards the old scripts but you have to realize that that is not some kind of intuition in a positive way pointing you in the right direction it's that self-defeating unconscious mind that you have 
that is going to push you back into those same painful scripts thinking that it's right and thinking it's the right place to go. Mm-hmm. So I hope you can think about, you know, there's a lot of things we talked about. You have to reflect on those and think more deeply. But, you know, taking care of yourself, as I said before, is the best thing you can do for your kids. And creating or recreating a bad marriage is not going to do them any favors or yourself. If you think he's, you know, it almost seems like the way you described him, he's selfish, he's this, he's that. Again, you want to confirm like men are bad, so you want to have that bad man in your life again. And I don't know if he's a bad man. I don't know him, but maybe that's the way you see him or what you feel. But it almost seems like you want to have that confirmation that men are bad because that's safer for you than the anxiety and the uncertainty of being with maybe a good man or allowing a man to be good to you. That's scarier to you. So this idea that you can describe him so poorly but then think you should go back and get him, I think is telling that you want to re recreate that movie again or continue that movie because you're used to it but it doesn't mean it's the right place to go mm-hmm. yeah but i thanks for calling i wish you the Thank best you. in that i know it's not easy to make these types of changes or to look at things in this way but good luck to you thank you so much sure thank you Bye. all right going into our next commercial break studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 we'll be right back Back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, thanks for calling. Uh, thank you, too. Uh, my question is regarding uh, to my anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, I called before. I'm dealing with GAD, OCD, hypochondria, all of these. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm going to uh, cognitive sessions and it just started uh, and I am um, also under medication too uh, but antidepressant medications mm-hmm. not uh, like bands or these kind of things mm-hmm. and that's and, good uh, because, but, yes and I'll just make a comment for listeners because sometimes people think well if I'm ha- having anxiety issues shouldn't I be put on anti-anxiety medication but for long-term use uh, antidepressants are usually what you're going to get prescribed maybe if you have panic attacks or extreme anxiety, you might have a benzodiazepine and anti-anxiety medication to take as needed here and there. But in general, you're more likely going to get an antidepressant. And it also shows that there is a big connection between depression and anxiety, that most anxiety uh, disorders, the treatment of choice when it comes to medication is an antidepressant. But okay, so you're on the antidepressant and you're going to cognitive behavioral therapy as well. Go ahead. Yes, uh, but uh, but still, I mean, I, I'm not expecting that it will be finished. But uh, it's like uh, I can tell you like this: one of my biggest fears uh, is the uh, fear of death. And I know that everybody dies one day, but I die every day because just I'm scared of death. And once I heard from your father that uh, he said those people who uh, didn't have a good life. They don't. Uh, they are scared of death. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, yes. Before I, I didn't have a quite good life, but now I have a good life, I think. And uh, but my fear is that okay, now I have it. What if I die and I lose this? Mm-hmm. Or 
or whatever happens to me is about life and death. If I have stomachache, it was it must be something related to cancer. If I have headache, it's something about tumors. You know, everything for me um, is like that, and I go to fight and flight mode, and um, it takes a lot of energy of me, and mm -hmm. uh, it makes me very tired, and. Uh, I don't like it. It's like it's not good to be in this situation all the time, of every course. day. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Sure. Okay. No, I, I, I want to ask you. What can I tell to myself? Uh, what can I tell myself to a little bit comfort myself or make myself calm down? Something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like you're doing a lot of good things. You're taking the medication. You're going to therapy. I'd also recommend meditation and exercise, both to practical. I think too. What's that? Uh, yes, I do, I do them too. Good. That's why I'm quite functional, but mm -hmm. still, when I'm doing this and that, I still have that anxiety. Yeah. Well, I, and something you mentioned before, I think I wanted to comment on, which is you're saying you're you know you're going to probably always have anxiety, which is something you might have to accept that at some level anxiety will be an issue for you sometimes people come into therapy and they say you know i have anxiety and i just want to get rid of all my anxiety and the truth of it is if you're someone who has severe anxiety issues it's very likely for your whole life anxiety will be something you're going to deal with now can we make it more manageable can it become less can you learn to live with it in a much better way absolutely but the idea that you'll get rid of your anxiety completely is not realistic and not something we should expect ourselves to create. So you're probably always going to have anxiety, even doing all the right things. Just like some people who are depressed, they take medication, they uh, go to therapy, they exercise, they meditate, they do everything, and they still get depressed sometimes. We have to accept and understand that these things, we can't just cure them and just take them away completely. All we can do is everything we can to make the best of what we're dealing with. And it seems like you're doing that, and I hope you'll continue to do that and hopefully find ways that will be even more helpful for you. Um, and absolutely, when you talk about constantly living in this almost like crisis mode or disaster, fight or flight, catastrophe, of course, that sounds horrible and it's going to take away a lot of your energy emotionally and physically and get in the way of you living your life, which is actually the next point I wanted to make. Um, so one, it does seem like your, your brain is just, unfortunately, the way it works is that it does worry about things or go to worst case scenarios and it's hard for you to stop that i'm glad you're doing the cognitive behavioral therapy it can help in this regard but it doesn't mean it's just going to go away completely but that's where your brain goes and that's why i think it is important that you're taking the medication because there are just some imbalances that appears in your brain where something that all of us do we can think about things and worry about things or uh, think about the future and and what could pot potentially go wrong your brain does it on overdrive. It does it a little bit too much, and that's the problem, and that's what you're trying to reduce. But the idea of fear of death, because I've seen this in a lot of people, and there's, of course, it's very complicated, this idea of fear of death. But one thing I have noticed is that sometimes there's a fear of death. Of course, it's of dying, but also it could be related in a way of a fear of not living, meaning that we're not really living our life. So in some ways, you even mentioned it as dying every day because you 
have these thoughts about life or death, we can almost live our life with this feeling that because I'm not living it, it's kind of like I'm dying every day. I'm not actually experiencing all of my life the way I would want or the way it's supposed to go or this, the way I'd want it to be. So somewhere in the back of our mind where there's this feeling of dying and this fear of dying or, what, or this fear of what if I died and I never lived my life. So I even think it's important for us to have not really necessarily a fear in a way that it's, we, we are constantly afraid of it, but this concern about not living our life. Because, yes, we are all going to die, but as the saying goes, but not necessarily everyone lives because not everyone has really lived their life. So sometimes there could be this fear of not living our life. And maybe that's some of what you experience too because of the anxiety that appears to at times be crippling or can maybe hold you back. Um, I think your brain goes into these worst case scenarios. So it really is a fear of death. What if this means I'm dying? What if I die today? What if I die tomorrow? But there might also be this feeling of what if I don't live my life the way I'd want to live it, that you might be experiencing. And also I, I think other people listening might recognize that they have it themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but so, yes, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, uh, okay, I, I absolutely understand this, but uh, why, when I still have uh, satisfaction of what I reached today, it was, uh, you know, my life now was my biggest goal when I was a kid and then when I was a teenager. So now I have the life that I want, but uh, now I have the fear of, okay, but what if I lose everything just by death? Okay, and what oh, if you do? Soul. Yeah, exactly. I, I tell myself everybody uh, can be in this situation, mm -hmm. but they don't think about it. Why yeah. do I think about it constantly, even when I'm busy with other things? Yeah, so, I, mean, uh, I think it is, you know, yeah. sometimes like I, I was talking with someone once and we kind of joked, you know, and I don't like using this word to talk about ourselves in any way, but it was just kind of in the moment of, you know, your inner voice is stupid. You know, sometimes it's just really wrong. Like it, it tells you things that we think it's so real and smart and telling us something, but it's just really like a, a crazy person talking on the street, just ra yelling random things. And so we randomly have these thoughts, but we think they're very real and true because it's our thoughts, but it doesn't mean much. And that's why one of the things that meditation can give us, and I'm glad you're saying you do it, and I hope you continue, is it creates that distance between ourselves and our thoughts. So you have this thought, what if I die tomorrow? And you say, okay, I'm having this fear that I a lot of times have about dying tomorrow. Does it mean I'm going to die tomorrow? No. Does it mean something's going to happen? Absolutely not. It's just one of those, it's a, a thought that comes to my mind. It doesn't mean it's real in any way because it comes to my mind. It feels real because that's how my brain responds to it, but it's not real. So I would actually recommend doing even more of that kind of meditation where you notice your thoughts and recognize that it's not real. It's just a fear. People have this fear, for example, I'm going to ruin the presentation tomorrow. It's like, okay, no, I'm having this worry about ruining. It's not that I'm going to. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. It's just the, the worry. This is my anxiety talking. It's not something I have to actually be afraid of. I have these thoughts all the time and nothing actually happens. It's just the way my brain works. My inner voice is just having these thoughts. Because we can't completely control our thoughts either. 
and that's something we have to be aware of, they in some ways do come out of nowhere. We can affect them over time. The more you focus on things, the more you talk about things, the more likely they might be to come to your mind. But a lot of thoughts are kind of random and just come to us. So yeah, you have this fear you're dying. And you have to look at it as just it's a thought in your brain, not some kind of reality or truth that because it's in my head somehow it means something. It's just kind of, it's pretty stupid. It's just something that comes to your mind. And if you can distance yourself from your worries, that might be helpful. Again, it's not going to take away all of the weight that they have, but it'll take away some of the weight or how intense it feels. Yes, and uh, well, sometimes when I do meditation, it mm-hmm. helps a lot, but maybe you cannot believe that sometimes when I'm doing meditation, I'm scared of, uh, out of body experience or something like that. Mm. Okay, yeah, talk about that. I, and I and I totally believe it. I know you said I might not because that's another thing. Sometimes people think, well, if you meditate, all you do is have these beautiful, pleasant thoughts. And not necessarily. You actually just get more in touch with your feelings. So sometimes feelings of anger might come up. Sometimes feelings of anxiety might come up. It's not just pleasant feelings we experience when we meditate. You actually just get more in touch with yourself or your psyche, however you want to call it. And some of the feelings aren't so pleasant. So, yeah, tell me about that. What is What are some of those not-so-pleasant experiences you have meditating? Uh, well, uh, it is not a good thing, but I did it uh, for, for a period that I was um, practicing out-of-body experience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and once I had a very bad experience, I don't know what it was. Was it my imagination or something happened or something? Uh, it was not so good, so um, I tried to go back to my body or, and be awake, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe just not be awake. So uh, from that moment, uh, I was a little bit uh, scared of even meditation. Mm. So uh, even I contacted medium, psychic medium, to uh, ask, okay, what what was that that I saw? Blah blah blah. Uh, so anyway. Uh, yes, I was practicing those. Okay, so that really scared you. I would say don't meditate in that same way if that seemed like it, it scared you more than uh-huh. it made you feel good. I don't think it means anything was going on in a supernatural way. Um, you were probably just, when you say out of body, do you mean like you were looking at yourself from above? That kind of a yes. feeling? I was very scary. <laughs> okay, for some people it could be a calming feeling. For some people it may be a scary, so maybe don't do that. Um, when I say create distance between yourself and your thoughts, you don't have to necessarily do it in that way that you did it. It's just we start to observe our thoughts. So you worry about something. Oh, what if my the itch I'm having in my foot means I'm having some kind of huge medical problem? And then you can say, okay, I'm having this fear that that itch that I'm feeling is something serious, but it doesn't mean it necessarily is. So it's creating that kind of a space. So I know that experience you had meditating was scary to the point where you called a medium who probably can't tell you much, but it shows how worried you were that you wanted some kind of explanation. To me, it doesn't mean anything crazy was going on or anything that you need to be worried about. You can meditate in so many different ways, so you don't have to do that type of meditation if it scares you. Um, When you start to meditate, you can always stop anytime you want. So you have that control over it, so you don't have to be worried about it going somewhere you don't want it to go. But I hope you will continue to meditate because for you, especially that you have these worries and they feel so real, it could be good to create that space between yourself and your thoughts to realize, you know what, I'm having this worry. It doesn't mean it's true. 
Uh, I was talking about the book on Monday, Why Buddhism is True, and Robert Wright was talking about how he sometimes have these negative thoughts about himself. But he realized that he was meditating once and he could recognize that this negative thought was just a thought in his head. And he could almost see it happening in his head and other parts of his brain communicating to that thought. And it made it a little bit less real. It, it distances ourselves from those thoughts and feelings, which actually can be a good thing. So if you can create some space between yourself and your worries, that actually will help you. So I hope that you'll take that risk. Maybe it feels like a risk to get back into meditating and go forward with it, even though you had that scary experience, because you don't have to take it in that same direction it went that time, and hopefully it can be helpful for you. Okay, thank you so much. Sure, thank, thank you, you for, for calling. Time. Yes, good luck. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, we've returned last commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, Dr. Hi, thanks for calling. Uh, thank you for listening. I have a, a question for my American friend that she's dating an Iranian guy, and mm -hmm. uh, they are together for a long time, as just dating, and they live in different cities right now. And they both have children, and now they have grandchildren too. But what happened was about two months ago, he was visiting her in another other city that she lives in with her grandchildren. And they called and said, police got her daughter, who has three daughters herself, like the guy's grandchildren. And uh, he was trying, she was trying to poison her husband and put some Xanax and some, I don't know, I don't know what else. Uh, and uh, he was, she was arrested and she went to the jail. Mm -hmm. In the jail, the, they said the, in the first day that she may have be bipolar, but we think it's more serious than that if you want to kill somebody. But at any rate, after she was uh, out by, with the bail, she came back and um, he brought her and her three children to play with my friend's three grandchildren in her house. My question is this. Are we supposed to accept people who are in danger of uh, society as our guests around our children or our grandchildren. Second is um, about the other side, the people who have uh, children that are schizophrenia or they know they're danger of society, like I had a colleague who would bring his son, knowing he has schizophrenia, to our party, office parties. Could you please, and your father in Farsi, you in English, because I want her to see, to hear it, Tell us what to do about both sides, the one who receives the guests like that and the one who brings guests like that to your house, which are a danger to society. Thank you. I'm listening. Sure. Um, well, I mean, this, uh, that's a very uh, complicated situation, and there's a lot mm -hmm. to talk about there. But one thing I do want to mention, maybe from one of you talked about two different sides, the side about bringing your, let's say, friend, family member around other people when they're a danger to society. Now, in this case, I know you're sharing that the person was actually trying to poison someone that is actually trying to harm someone very directly. But in general, people, yes, people who are mentally ill are not um, very likely to hurt other people. We have this 
idea or mindset of just, oh, the crazy, mentally ill person that's going around hurting people. Or if you see a homeless person and they have schizophrenia, they're going to hurt you in some way. But we know that people who are severely mentally ill, they're much more likely to be the victims of violence or aggression than to actually commit those kinds of crimes. So just because someone has schizophrenia, I wouldn't say they shouldn't be around anyone or we have to keep them away from everyone because they're a when danger to society. They should cut their hands or something or, you know, I, because you don't know when they snap. Okay. That, that's, okay. I don't necessarily, I mean, it depends on what we're talking about. Now, and again, these situations aren't black or white. So yes. it's not that no one who's mentally ill can't be a threat to other people. Right. I'm not saying that either, but I'm saying mm-hmm. I don't want to uh, kind of continue that stigma that exists that mentally ill people are just, you know, danger to society and we have to be afraid of all of them and they're all going to just snap and start hurting people around them because that isn't what we see yes some people might be more uh likely to hurt other people and especially in this case maybe she specifically just wants to hurt her husband maybe she wants to hurt other people i don't know and i can understand your friend being a little bit uneasy about that person being around them and it's not even just about her but that situation where if she really was trying to poison her husband i don't think i would want that around my family during that time while it's still in that chaotic situation that they're whatever they're dealing with i don't know if she had charges pressed against her if she really was trying to kill him i don't know if she would be let out of jail well, uh, she herself has a six month old baby and i don't know if you want to kill your husband while you have a six month old baby how crazy you are to me you are extremely dangerous but i may be biased the other thing is they didn't want to bail her out her american mother because that a persian guy was married to an american and then divorced and met my friend here. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. People who recycle, <laughs> divorce and meet somebody else. Well, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with... Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's nothing wrong with divorcing and meeting new people. That's not necessarily... A, there's no, a ne- I didn't say that, sir. I didn't say okay. that. I said the mother, the American mother who doesn't even live with this girl okay. and lives in another country came and bailed her out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When he, she bailed her out, then this um, Iranian man was supposed to carry her with her wherever she goes, maybe, I don't know. Uh, so um, she had something to do in this town and brought her in her house. And all the time, you know, you're worried, what is she going to put in anybody's drink? Just for that mentality that we have because she was being arrested. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and just... Iranians never tell... Uh, my other side of question was Iranians never tell if they have a um, sick person in their house because of Aberu. Okay, right. that, that's the part your father in Farsi could guide us about. But you please tell me stuff to tell my friend, or I wanted to listen to this. This is in SoundCloud, right? Yes, sure. It'll be okay. on SoundCloud tonight. Okay, yeah. So, you know, these these situations are case by case, and I don't know the whole situation, obviously, to say exactly what your friend should or shouldn't do. But just to share some thoughts about that, uh, as far as if you, you don't feel comfortable having someone in your home, it's always your right to say you don't want them in your home or you do. That That's always your choice, whatever the situation is, whether you just don't like them personally and their personality, or if you feel like they're somehow... A threat to you or your family or they make you feel uncomfortable yeah. or dangerous that is up to you now it doesn't mean but your friend can't in love with that Persian guy well that and doesn't love him yes but yes but when we have because if just because we love someone or even because actually we love someone we let them know how we feel and what we're 
experiencing and what we're comfortable with and not comfortable with, right? If I don't, just because you love someone means you let them do anything they want to you or you accept anything they say or do, but you have to talk to them about it and say, look, this is how I'm feeling. Whatever the situation is, here it's this very specific situation, maybe something else. It said, you know, I don't want to go on this trip with you or I don't want to have your family over. I don't want it. Whatever it is, we have to be willing to talk about it. So it, because she's in love, actually, that's even more reason that she should tell him something if she feels something. Okay, what about the guy? Should he bring her or, or the people who who have children like that or are in this situation? But again, you what know, yeah, I, and I know you keep saying like that, which is a very blanket statement that they are necessarily harmful. If someone, you know, you're, the situation you're describing is very unique, that someone literally was trying to kill their own husband. Yeah, I can understand you maybe don't want them in your house the next week after that just happened. And you should be aware that this is, you know, first of all, even their family needs to deal with it. They maybe shouldn't be going over and to people's houses they don't know so well or spending time with other people. They need to, there's a lot for them to work on. And we can't uh, avoid that in a lot of people in general. And definitely Persians were very good at this. We kind of deny things and just say, oh, it just happened. Let's just move forward. I don't know exactly what they're doing, but clearly there's some huge issues to be dealt with either with her own mental health and what's going on in the marriage, whatever it might be that they need to, to look what at. What about the schizophrenia people? Like my colleague would say, my son looks into the microwave and says, oh, his CIA is looking at us yeah. through the microwave. And he would bring him to the office party. Well, I'm standing next to him scared. Yeah, but like I'm saying, you don't necessarily have to be scared of that person. Uh, people Good. who have schizophrenia aren't necessarily going to harm you. Now, I think, yeah, as an individual, if you have, let's say, a son, daughter, family member, you you know how they're doing, and sometimes they're doing better or worse, so maybe they shouldn't be around people, or they should, or it's not a good time for them. So we have to be mindful of those things, but I wouldn't say if your son or daughter has schizophrenia, never bring them anywhere. No, I don't agree with that at all. Um, you maybe are aware of what situations you leave them in based on understanding them, what might stress them out or what might make them react but definitely i don't agree with okay your son or daughter has schizophrenia just leave them in the home and they should have no social interaction they actually need uh social interaction and we have to help cultivate that and promote that for them so we make sure they get the treatment they need if they need medication which is often the case if we're dealing with schizophrenia at any level they're probably going to need medication yeah. Sure, very quickly. We just have two or three minutes before okay. the show ends. Go the ahead. Doctors, the doctors told the, this guy in my office that uh, he should, the son should live in special houses. But the mother, usually Persian mothers, you know, oh, my son, my beautiful son, they don't take him to those houses. Uh -huh. They say, no, let him stay with us. Okay, yep. you want to take the danger, take the danger. Why should well, you but take again, the So again, just the fact I, that... I sound like Hitler, don't I? No, you don't sound like <laughs> Hitler. But what I was going to say is there's, there's a few things going on. One is, um, again, because I, I think, yeah, you're right, that we shouldn't just think because it feels wrong to put my kid in a home, it's the wrong thing to do. Sometimes it can be the right thing to do. And sometimes the same thing happens with our parents. Sometimes they need to be in a home more than... Well, we have to keep them in our house and suffer and make them suffer more just because it's the right thing to do. And as family, we don't put our family in home. Sometimes the right thing is to do that. Um, but again, just because the doctor suggests that this 
person would be better off in a home doesn't mean it's because they're violent and we can't put them around people. It might mean that that's just a better treatment facility for them than for them to be in the house. So again, I don't want to equate mental illness with violence and threat of violence because it's not the same thing. And very often we have that connection that people make that if someone is mentally ill, we have to be very afraid of them because they're going to snap and kill us or hurt us. And that isn't the case. So yeah. that makes me feel better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I tell my friend and I ask her to listen to this. And uh, thank you for your time. Sure. Doctor. Thanks for calling. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Just about wrapping up the show, I wanted to announce the book of the week again. It is the, the book of Why, The New Science of Cause and Effect by Judea Pearl and Dan Mc, Dana McKenzie. And again, Monday here in the United States is Labor Day, so we will not be doing live programming. I won't do my show. I'll be with you Wednesday, which is when I'll talk about that book. And just maybe very brief comment, as I mentioned with that caller. There is this idea we have that people who are mentally ill, we should be afraid of them. And this unfortunately is a big part of the stigma. It makes the stigma even stronger how we deal with people with mental illness or people's fear of saying they have mental illness. We don't have to be afraid of the mentally ill. All of us to some degree have mental illness, but even people with severe mental illness are not likely to be a threat to you or me. They are in need of help. They deserve help and we should help them, but we shouldn't be afraid of them and to think that they are going to be violent and hurt us. And we see this a lot in the media that Oh, if there was a killer or a shooter, it was mental illness. It was mental illness. And yes, maybe if someone gets to the point that they're going to go kill many people, mental illness likely plays a part. But it doesn't mean that most people or even a very small number of people with mental illness are going to act in that way. And we should equate mental illness with violence and aggression. So people who are mentally ill, they're sick. They need help. They deserve help. We don't need to just be afraid of them. That brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you to all the callers and the listeners and to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful day.